overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Okay, in three, two, one, we are now live with another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast, the podcast focused on helping you live a healthier life so that you can do what you want to do. Mental health is a huge aspect of medicine and not talked about as much, especially with preventive medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Mitesh Patel, a practicing psychiatrist here in the Indianapolis area who completed his residency from the University of Louisville and currently practices what he preaches. He is a ghost on social media and does things that make him happy and feed his mental health instead of the things that everyone else around him is doing. In this episode, we dive into what mental health means in the realm of preventive medicine, why the country is reaching a mental health crisis, and some take-home tips to improve your mental health. And now, here's the so, show. Uh, kind of just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what got you into medicine in the first place, what got you into psychiatry, and then how you ended up here. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you guys for having me. Um, my journey to medicine, I guess, started, uh, my dad was a doctor, so like many children, you want to emulate your father. And, um, that was my first, uh, I guess, inkling about going into medicine. But as I went through my undergrad, um, became more passionate about the sciences and then, uh, entered medical school. The original plan was for me to be an internist like my dad. Um, but in my third year psychiatry clerkship at the VA really fell in love with the transformative aspect of psychiatry as well as the, uh, the team approach. I felt that psychiatry was one of the few specialties where I got to work with a lot of other professionals, um, doctors, as well as social workers, nurses. Um, and so, yeah, and then I went to, did my, did my residency at the university of Louisville. Um, and then, uh, I ended up here in Indianapolis. All right. So, um, just a brief aside for anyone who's listening to this, it might necessarily not necessarily know medicine that well. So when you say words like clerkship or psychiatry, you might want to expand a little bit. So can I ask you a little bit about what psychiatry is for those of you who might not know? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so psychiatry is the practice of mental health. So psychology would be the study of mental health, whereas psychiatry is the practice of. Um, psychiatrists uh, go to medical school, uh, four years of medical school, and then do four years of psychiatry general residency. Some um, psychiatrists do an additional one year, one or two years of fellowship um, in various subspecialties like child and adolescent, addiction, forensic, or geriatric psychiatry. So also in, in medical school, we do various rotations. And so mm-hmm. what I am referencing is my third year required six weeks uh, rotating through the psychiatric department. Got it. And I know Jason just rotated with you right now. Correct? Yes. yes. Just, just got said. finished this last uh, <laughs> last week. So that was a, f- a fun experience. Definitely a, a good learning experience. And uh, I can I can definitely attest to that transformative aspect of psychiatry where um, you can definitely see people um, at the worst and get them almost back to, you know, what we would consider um, like a good standing of health and, um, how, how much can change in a relatively short period of time with folks, which is very, um, very good learning experience. So 
Yeah. And speaking for my own psych uh, rotation, I had that, I think about two or three months ago now. And I definitely can attest to that where you see people go through lows and highs of life and see how just like a little bit of treatment, a little bit of like personal care even goes so far into improving someone's mental health. So it's definitely a very interesting specialty. And uh, I think it's going to become a lot more popular in years to come as the amount of like uh, mental health crises continues to grow. So absolutely. I think also as a society where we're understanding more about how mental health issues present themselves, we're also becoming more accepting of seeking help. Um, hasn't really gotten to doctors yet, but I think mm -hmm. in, in the general society, you know, we're more accepting of actually saying we have depression or anxiety and receiving the appropriate treatment for that. Definitely. And uh, with this name of the podcast being the Preventive Medicine Podcast, usually the thing is um, when you think about prevention and medicine, you're thinking more of like the physical aspects. You're thinking like nutrition, diet, exercise, and all the things that come along with that. So introducing psychiatry and the field of mental health into preventive medicine is really interesting, which is why I find that um, having you on the podcast provides some very unique insight into this. So what can you say about um, the role of psychiatry and mental health within preventive medicine. Sure. Well, first, maybe I can give you background on my perspective. I um, graduated residency of June of 2018, and so I've been in practice for two years. So by, I am by no means an expert, um, but my views are informed uh, partially uh, growing up uh, as an Indian American. So, you know, having that one toe in Eastern philosophy and the rest of my body in Western philosophy, mm -hmm. um, as well as my experience in residency, learning from a variety of fantastic attendings in Louisville, as well as what I learned um, in my two years of uh, my first two years of working. Um, so I'm sorry, back to what was your original question? <laughs> the, the question was kind of like, where's the crossroads of psychiatry, mental health and preventive medicine? Because you sure. usually think about it in like the physical aspect, like going to the gym and eating, right? So yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think psychiatry has always been originally an interventional specialty. I think we always saw people when they already were at their worst or getting to their worst. Um, but I, uh, I think I agree with what you guys are doing. And I think hopefully psychiatry is heading in that direction, thinking about ways to keep people healthy and keep people, um, in a place where they're attending to their own mental health. And I think self-care is, is a huge part of the, part of the plan. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, so one of the things I think that's beneficial for us, uh, being third years borderline going on to our fourth year of medical school, um, and you being, I mean, very relatively new out of residency, I think there's, there's a good connection between, um, you know, the, the, this, this, I guess, more intensive integration of evidence-based practice, um, and how that's kind of affecting all specialties. But I think psychiatry now is, um, kind of definitely going headfirst into that more evidence-based approach to what has kind of been a, or at least been known as more of a subjective specialty at times. What do you think about kind of how th those directions are going? Yeah, there's an interesting interplay between, um, between various forces in psychiatry, but I, I agree with you. Psychiatry is certainly heading in a more evidence-based direction. Um, however, I think our efforts to fit people into discrete categories in order to adequately assess prognosis, treatment, research, I think may serve as a detriment for people trying to really figure out, you know, what's wrong with me. And, and sometimes that diagnosis is helpful. Sometimes it's not. And sometimes people are, are searching for a label to how they're feeling. And sometimes they just need to focus on what they need to do to feel better. So I, I think that, that, that is a double-edged sword, us going to that evidence-based uh, medicine standard. And I believe that that's, you know, also 
something we have to consider across all specialties in medicine. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, kind of playing off both of those things that you guys just said, I know Jason was mentioning towards the evidence-based and uh, you were mentioning about like the self-care aspect. Has there been, not to my uh, knowledge yet, there has been too much evidence on like different methods of self-care and things like that as far as prevention and uh, going that way. So what can you speak about like evidence-based self-care type things for prevention? Sure. Absolutely. Well, I think number one, um, you know, burnout is a common thing, even in medicine, outside of medicine. And so, um, various interventions have looked at burnout. Uh, one of the, one of the, the new areas of research is the four day work week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, reducing the number Good of hours. Tim work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think they've done that somewhere where productivity went up 40%. So yeah. I definitely think there's evidence for number one, spending more time in other aspects of our lives and less time at work. Mm -hmm. Um, the other things, uh, mindfulness is a big, uh, movement that is, that has been shown to decrease burnout rates. So mindfulness is an Eastern philosophy that involves, um, appreciating the world or your surroundings, um, through your senses rather than through your mind and without judgment. And so those Mm -hmm. mindfulness interventions, a lot of things that we do may even be mindfulness techniques, uh, but mindfulness techniques have been shown to help improve burnout and help reduce stress. Yeah. And, uh, what kind of mindfulness techniques are you talking about here? So So, much like sitting down and just like kind of staring out a window or something more active. It's a little bit more active. Um, so deep breathing, I don't know if people are familiar with deep breathing, but it's that uh, idea of breathing in through your nose for four seconds out through your mouth for six seconds, doing that repetitively. That's actually a mindfulness technique. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when people focus on their breath, um, it's actually one of the first, uh, things you learn when you learn how to meditate is that it takes you out of your mind and onto focusing on your breath um, and thereby maybe reducing the ruminative nature of, of things that are going on in your life, uh, providing some relaxation. Um, and so that's the essential kind of how mindfulness works. Um, how I use mindfulness is I, I learned one thing uh, on a website called One Mindful Moment. So if you do something repetitively throughout the day, so for me, I... Uh, you know, I grab a chart or I go into my office over and over again. Sometimes I'll take a minute and just have a mindful moment and uh, try to do a little deep breathing. You know, you do those five or six times a day. That can really help with overall stress management, anxiety, um, burnout prevention. And I think uh, I, I'm on Twitter. I got active a lot more recently for the past couple months. Mm-hmm. And in chatting, like uh, there's hashtags like social media docs, so me docs. And I think one of the threads on there was about what physicians do to reduce burnout or to like... Um, essentially be more happy during the practices. And one of the strategies that someone recommended on there was actually the same thing that you're talking about, where like in between patients or when they have a little bit, they'll go into their office into like a quiet space, wherever they have space, I guess. I know offices are not always the quietest, but um, they practice that mindfulness. They like focus on their breath for Mm -hmm. a little bit and those little amounts during the day end up for them anecdotally being a lot more helpful. Absolutely. I think speaking to the whole point of your podcast, I think oftentimes we are probably doing mindfulness when things have gone too far. And so, you know, doing mindfulness in a preventative way or building Mm -hmm. time into your schedule to, to be more mindful will certainly help in the long term of, you know, preventing things from getting worse in, in case stress pops up. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, you know, maybe even, even subclinically, I think just in a subjective way, I think I've noticed that, um, just as a, as a population here in the United States, that anxiety is becoming a more prominent issue. And I think it's, I think maybe some of it has to do with technology and kind of our, our, our kind of where we're heading towards technology. And, um, I just feel like there's a lot of folks out there who are so focused on like the future, like whether it's the immediate future, the things they're worrying about for their jobs or whatever, or the long-term future of, you know, the state of the world, this, the climate change, like things like, like worrying about those sorts of things, um, it really takes them out of living in that moment or, or being present with themselves. And I think that, 
that mindfulness idea can take people kind of out of that worrisome future mindset and just focus on where I am right now, what I'm doing in this moment. So I feel like that can help alleviate a lot of those kind of even, you know, subclinical anxieties that people just face, you know, in everyday life. And jump, jumping straight off onto that, I personally do YouTube on the outside of this podcast. And one of the videos that I made was on like anxiety and why I think people feel anxiety. Mm -hmm. And exactly what Jason was talking about is one of the reasons where they like project into the future. They see themselves, they see all these expectations, different things that they have to do. And they look at themselves currently. They're like, I can't do that. I'm not like physically capable of doing this. I'm not mentally capable. I just don't have the capacity right now. And that feeling overwhelms them. And then that's where that aspect of staying in the present and just focusing on what you can control right now is so important. So that's definitely uh, mindfulness is amazing technique for that to stay in the present, to reduce like the burden of the future, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Society way. puts an incredible amount of pressure on us to be successful and, you know, uh, Talking about society's ills are probably beyond the scope of this podcast, but I think uh, people more than ever are facing pressures, financial, uh, familial, that are are reaching a breaking point. And I think we need to have an outlet for those things. And I think mindfulness in combination with other things can definitely be helpful. I think also having that work-life balance. So um, doing things that you love outside of, of work can certainly help people with their mental health. Mm -hmm. And then kind of a controversial question going off of that. Uh, I know we talked a little bit off camera about this where mm -hmm. I was reading um, the book of joy, where it's a conversation between the Dalai Lama and uh, Desmond Tutu. And one of the things that I think it was uh, Tutu, he said was that um, ambition is kind of built into the U S and that ambition is kind of what fuels a lot of this anxiety. Cause we have to do this. We have to do this. We have to make so much money, get a nice house, get a nice car, have a nice wife, have a nice life. And so many other things. So is it okay not to be ambitious in a sense, if it were to reduce anxiety? In my opinion, yes. I think we are a society, especially Western society, we just want more, more and more and more. And so, you know, we want to, we want to do better than our parents did. Well, you know, I think maybe we have to accept that our parents have done pretty well and it's okay for us to do as well or a little bit less well than our parents. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think, you know, if we look at the history of America, you know, we were founded by Puritans who wanted to do their own thing and the whole philosophy of America is freedom and, and, and independence. And I think that freedom and independence has come at an expense of community. So in our efforts to do what we want and get what we need, we may be putting the important parts of community, family um, on the wayside. Interesting. Do you think that in a, in a way we've lost touch with our connection to others and that's kind of contributing to you know, where we're at right now with, you know, people being more anxious and, and more depressed than seemingly ever? I believe so. I also think, you know, the internet um, technology, like you guys mentioned, is a big part of it. You know, we're, we're at a point where we don't need to interact with people. I mean, myself, like I love ordering um, somewhere where I don't have to interact with anyone. So you order online, <laughs> you go and you pick it up. Um, but, you know, that I think that certainly keeps people in a place where they're just isolated, um, not being around people and, you know, by definition, so human beings are social creatures, you know, um, look, if you look at us as hunter gatherers, we were in small groups, not on off by ourselves. Um, and so I think the more we realize that, that just being alone, not having people around us, 
um, I think the better it'll be for society. Mm-hmm. I think one of the difficulties though, speaking to that point is that once you get to a point of depression and anxiety and many of those other mental illnesses that come along at that point, um, you kind of want to be alone and you kind of further isolate yourself more because then everything else seems to cause more anxiety, seems to make you feel less, um, happy, more sad. So how do you kind of stop that vicious cycle in a sense? That's a great question. Um, million dollar question, probably. I think <laughs> there's, there's some evidence to say forcing yourself helps. So it's, it's, a principle in cognitive behavioral therapy called behavioral activation, but essentially scheduling time or planning to do something that you don't want to do, um, but just doing it anyway. And there's there's a lot of evidence that say that says that once you start going, that that activity or whatever you were dreading is actually much more enjoyable or can, can become enjoyable. Um, I also think, you know, reaching out to support systems and if you don't have a support system, you know, emergency contacts within the mental health system can Mm -hmm. be very helpful. Um, yeah, those are, those are some things that can get you out of that cycle of, of isolation. And so kind of, kind of a back step here, but how would you define someone who's mentally healthier? I know it's, it's kind of a, probably a, a very hard thing to define what is mental health, but in your best estimation, what makes somebody mentally healthy? Hmm. That is an excellent question. As somebody who is, is still on the journey of, of mental wellness, you know, I'm not sure. I think, uh, <clears throat> I think awareness, I think is a big part of it. Awareness of your own biases, awareness of your difficulties in interpersonal relationships, awareness of maladaptive patterns of behavior, I think can help people be the most successful, content, um, and, you know, kind people. But yeah, I think that that standard changes depending on where you are in life. Um, so that is an excellent question that I don't think we have the answer to yet. And actually, so I, I'm a big fan of stoic philosophy. Mm-hmm. So uh, we talked, we had talked about this a while before, yeah. but I think one of the, the greatest quotes that I've heard that, you know, I think we, that we kind of lose sight of sometimes is that it's not the absence of stressors that makes uh, life a happy life. It's an adequate amount of stressors that, um, challenge us, but not to it, 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 kind of a point beyond what we're capable of, of dealing with. So I think it's almost like we, we don't need to be searching for this stress-free, you know, I guess like perfectly relaxed life, but we need to also not be at this point where every second of every day is this great stressor. So having an adequate amount of challenge, um, to ourselves in kind of building our personal, I guess, self-efficacy or, you know, resiliency as people, but also, um, not over to the point where we're unable to handle that amount of stress. Absolutely. I think what you're speaking to is the importance of balance. Um, and I tell my patients this constantly, if you find yourself on one, you know, on one side or the other often, you know, I think more and more, even in my own personal life, I'm learning that balance is a very important thing to remember. You know, we, we want to have a balanced view of our lives, a balanced view of the people around us, a balanced view of our abilities, because being one way, you know, being too cocky or egotistical is obviously bad. And then being too self-deprecating or critical is bad. And I think trying to find that balance is also a very difficult difficult thing to do. That's yeah. So I mean, true. when you, when you try to find that balance, you look at yourself trying to kind of maybe limit yourself in a sense where let's say you want to go to work all the time so you can make a lot of money, but you would need to step back because balance, but then you see your friends and they're pushing it to the like limit, uh, pedal to the metal, as they say, and they're making all this money and that just makes <laughs> you want to do it even more. So it becomes even harder to find that balance because you see everyone else around you pushing harder. So you want to as well. So yeah. how do you kind of limit yourself, I guess, in a sense, Whereas you're seeing everyone else going crazy. Well, I think it really depends on your priorities. I think if you want to make your own happiness a priority rather than success, um, then I think you'll, you'll be more apt to maybe 
cut out a couple hours of work and spend some more time with your family, um, despite what your friends are doing. So, um, I, I totally understand the societal pressures to do what other people around you do mm-hmm. are doing. Um, but you know, look at what's going on. I mean, people are doing the same things and people are unhappier than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and suicide rates are climbing. And so I think something needs to change. And the more and more of us, um, stop drinking the metaphorical Kool-Aid, <laughs> I think <laughs> the better off uh, society will be. <laughs> exactly. One of the things that you said in there, sorry to cut you off. Oh, you're okay. Um, is that you might have to limit your own success if you want to be happy, but I'm going to raise you a point and say, isn't success this kind of being happy in a sense where we're all chasing our success is essentially to be happy, correct? We want more money, more cars, all of these things that we've already discussed and that we feel will make us more happy. So do we really have to limit our own success to find happiness or are those two kind of the same thing? Well, I would disagree. Um, well, I understand what you're saying. I think success, at least to me, means money. Maybe, maybe that's possibly mm-hmm. what I mean, but many studies have shown, you know, you make more than $75,000, um, adding a hundred thousand, yeah. 500,000, that doesn't make a yeah. difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Biggie said it best, more money, more problems. <laughs> um, Wise so, words. Yeah. So I think, you know, absolutely. Maybe when being happy is a form of being successful. And I think there is a, probably a balance between how much you want to do and how content you are doing what you are doing. Hmm. Do you think that, you know, I kind of back to what we were talking about before with familial pressure, do you think that sometimes if you, you know, coming from parents who are, I guess, from an, uh, a, uh, American definition of successful or very successful, and maybe they, they came from something where their family wasn't as successful and they worked really hard to get this life that they had. And then they want you to have that same mentality where it's almost like our, as, as families, we're less focused on, uh, our children's, you know, quality of life and more focused on their success. Their, like we said earlier, like their ability to go above and beyond yeah. where they started. So it's almost like, I think part of it is built into, um, almost like American culture in a certain way is like, I, like I, I have to keep doing this, you know, it's all about the grind. I have to keep working and I have to keep doing this because, you know, my parents did this and they had less than I have. So I feel like they, you know, I, I owe it to them to not settle. Right. So, but then I think there's some healthy qualities there, but I think that can definitely lead to, um, that kind of c- continuous cycle of more, 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 instead of like, Hey, what I've got is pretty good. My family's healthy. We have everything we need. You know, there's, you know, uh, above and beyond is not going to make life any objectively better. Absolutely. I think, uh, there's a great documentary on Netflix called happiness, um, that speaks to this idea of flow and flow, um, is kind of that, that place where you're doing something where you don't, you're kind of in your happy place, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, I got several flows. One is flying my drone, as nerdy as it sounds. I love <laughs> flying that thing. I and really then, want to get a drone. Sorry, yeah. side note. That's <laughs> the next purchase it, I'm sitting up for. I highly recommend it. In the 15 or 20 or 30 minutes that you do get to fly, because the batteries <laughs> don't last very long. It is very enjoyable, you know, um, riding my bike. You know, that's another... Uh, flow for me. Um, but in that documentary, everybody who was happy had a form of flow. And so however we can find that flow, um, can also certainly help us be more content, be more happy as long as we're, we're getting that kind of, it's also, it almost sounds like a mindfulness thing. We're getting that place where we can just be present in the moment. And I think what you're saying also comes down to that same concept of balance that we've been Mm -hmm. talking about, where it's putting time, uh, forward towards yourself as well as towards the other things that you're passionate about, the things that you want to do. Absolutely. So like finding that flow state is kind of the Mm -hmm. thing 
things that you really enjoy doing and making sure you invest time in yourself to invest in your happiness and whatever else you want to do, as well as investing time in other people. So absolutely. And I think one of the things that you touched on that, that I think really want to emphasize is the kind of the importance of hobbies. I think we've lost, I think we've lost kind of our sense of doing things for enjoyment. Like it almost seems like everything we do now has to have some end goal, right? Like if I'm working out, it's because I have to you know, squat this amount of weight or I have to achieve this body or I have to do, but instead of just like, I enjoy exercising, it makes me feel good. And it kind of gets me into like that flow state where you're kind of just in the moment. You're not thinking about all these stressors. Right. And for some people, maybe it's exercising. Some people it's flying the drone. Some people, maybe it's, you know, playing chess, whatever it is. I think we've lost sight of like just doing things for the sake of doing them for fun. Right. Well, I mean, what do, what do the majority of us do when we get home? Go on the TV, go on watch the TV. Netflix, scroll through our phones. Yeah, so. not at exactly. Eat active. some dinner, maybe uh, order it to your door so you don't have to interact with anyone. <laughs> exactly. And then go straight to bed. <laughs> so not exactly an active form of, of de-stressing, right? And, you know, I'm guilty of this too. I love Netflix like any other person. But um, I think, you know, making that time that you're not at work, because everyone has to work, in, unfortunately, because the Western side, we have to live. <laughs> um, but out, making that time outside of work quality. And, you know, you're not going to do your hobby all the time that you're not Mm -hmm. at work, but even that one or two hours that you're doing your hobby, exercising, whatever it is, is going to be quality time rather than just sitting in front of the TV. I'm going to add like a slight personal (laughs) anecdote into this. So, uh, we're both me and Jason are M3s right now. So that means we're in our third year of medical school. And at the end of your second year, you take step one, which is like a super stressful period. If you go on Twitter anywhere, everyone's like, I'm super stressed. I'm like on the verge of collapsing and whatnot. But I, uh, I actually picked up a new hobby during that time. And I found that was incredible incredibly useful in maintaining my sanity. Mm-hmm. So what uh, I picked up was pizza making. So essentially nice. every single, well, I also love eating and cooking. So it's really nice. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, every evening I'd like set aside an hour to like make pizza from scratch every single day. And I found that was like very re-energizing and just like allows me to gain energy that I can put into my setting later yeah, he has on. Like so. a, he has an at-home, like, wood fire, like, <laughs> oven, like, little... It's, it's, uh, it's getting yeah. pretty serious right now. We, we did this podcast in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, we should be making a pizza right now. We should drive to Chicago. But, but I bet while you were making that pizza... You know, in that in that one hour that you had, you weren't thinking about step one or weren't oh, thinking about exactly. memorizing I'm thinking about a, that cheese, that sauce. Facts. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, we need to have more moments like that and people need to be more intentional about mm. having moments like that. I think one of the difficulties that <clears throat> comes with that is that whenever you look um, like online, you see the glorification of like entrepreneurship and hustle and how everyone talks about making your hobby into an additional source of income. Because <laughs> if you don't have six sources of income, you're failing at life. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> so everyone tries to take those hobbies that they have and they don't do it for themselves. Like we've been talking about where it's like pure energizing yourself. They think about it in the sense where how can I monetize this in the future? And that's where I personally think one of the biggest uh, faults is that we add that pressure onto ourselves again. Like we've been talking about this whole entire time of trying to get success through that monetary gain and monetizing your hobbies. And you take basically you're taking what was an enjoyable hobby and you're making it another job. So exactly. you're just adding all this extraneous pressure onto yourself for something that you started because maybe it was enjoyable. Right. But if yeah. it was enjoyable when you started, it certainly will not be enjoyable by no. the time you've monetized it. Mm-hmm. No. And, and I do agree. I think one of those things that kind of like with social media culture is like, you know, everyone, everyone who's successful or everyone, you know, a lot of these people who are kind of like, I think of the Gary Vee subtype people who are like, you know, they want to go out there and give like this advice of like, Hey, 
you should be doing all these things and you can, you can make your life so great if you just do this and this and this, but you have to, you know, not sleep ever. And you got to do this and you got to grind. You got to make this 24 seven. It's not a, you know, 40 hour work week. It's a 24 seven thing. It's like, no, like there should be a separation between our work life and our life life. You know, like the part that, you know, we actually should be enjoying should not have anything to do with the financial or, uh, I guess, outwardly goals that we're seeking to seeking to achieve. So, um, so that, that's one of my like personal pet peeves with social media is that it seems like everyone encourages this mindset of more, more, more. And if you're not on board with it, you're lazy or you're lazy or you're not goal oriented or, you know, like you know, God forbid you want to go like out there and go for a walk in the middle of the day. Cause you're not grinding, you know, you're not, you're not furthering your success. But, um, but I think, I think things are kind of starting to steer away from that. But for a few years there, it seemed like that was like the big, the big push on social media was like, you know, you gotta be achieving your goals 24 seven. I think that's kind of an unhealthy mindset to have. Absolutely. I mean, social media in general, uh, double-edged sword, I think, I think it's done a lot to connect people, but I certainly think it's done a lot to hold people back. Just recently, um, I, I think there was a study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry that looked at teens and that concept of fear of missing out. And those who had that feeling of fear of missing out more were linked to more depression and more anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think, uh, you know, I see a lot of uh, people on Facebook posting about everything that they do. Um, and I, I think that just goes to speak to that's not really you being there in the moment. Right. No. And then, you know, whatever your motivations are for posting that, be it monetary, um, attention, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think that just detracts from the quality of just being there, you know? So, you know, I see a lot of people going camping or going to Europe and they're posting about their trip rather than actually just experiencing it. You're seeking um, that validation. Exactly. Exactly. Like if you like, don't get a picture at every monument, then you're not enjoying your Europe trip. You right. Know? Yeah. You know, and you want, you know, you want those hundred, 200 likes so you can feel better about yourself, <laughs> you know, and you need that dopamine hit. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just really sad. And, you know, I've, I've been guilty of that too. in, in my younger years, um, now I barely use Facebook, but it's, uh, it's just interesting to see how m now more than ever, we're, we're seeking that external validation of, Hey, what you're doing matters. What you're doing is worthwhile doing right. Yeah. Rather than doing what you want. You said that you barely use Facebook. Now, do you think more people should like, not necessarily avoid, but de-emphasize the use of social media within their lives and that would improve mental health. Absolutely. You know, what I always encourage my patients to do is look at their screen time. Um, a lot of people, especially if you have the newest version of iOS, don't know <laughs> that that exists and it is illuminating. Um, if you look at it for the first time, you're like, wow, this is how much time I spend per day on the mm -hmm. phone. It's actually scary. It's, it's very like, scary. Did yeah. I really spend that long this week on Mine my phone? Mine is three hours and well, I think I mean, that's far too much. I do flashcards <laughs> on my phone, so okay. it's it's kind of inflated. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can even, the, the new iPhone, phone software actually breaks it down to what you're doing while you're on your phone. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I spent two hours a day on Reddit, which I don't know if that's a good, <laughs> good or bad thing. I mean, um, just spending two hours a day on the toilet, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's probably true. Uh, but yeah, what I always encourage patients to do is look at how much time you're spending on the phone and look at what you're doing and what you could be doing if you're not sitting on your mm -hmm. phone. Um, you know, there are apps that kick you out of your phone, um, that if you pick it up within a certain interval, it won't let you access it. And I think those apps are fantastic. Obviously, you know, those apps you can deactivate in emergencies in case you actually need to use your phone. But I think that is just another more mindful practice of so being, being there in the moment, not checking your phone every two seconds, looking to see, you know, what's happening on social media, seeing who text you, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, do you think that <clears throat> jumping off of that, do you think that parents should start limiting their kids screen time a lot earlier so that we can kind of prevent a lot of these, uh, mental diseases that we're talking about since this is the preventive medicine podcast. Yeah. Um, 
I think they should. I, you know, my sister has a nephew and, um, from, from what I hear, I, she lives in California, but the iPad or I, or the iPhone is one of the few things that helps calm them down. So I think that that's certainly a challenge in our, you know, modern parenting paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think the less time that kids are sitting in front of that screen, the better it is now <laughs> kids look around them and what are their parents doing though? They're, They're on, on their, their screens. Phones. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think that is, going to be a tough one to unravel for sure. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think it's, it would be a good thing. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you look at, if you look around and you like our childhoods, me and Jason, I think we're probably one of the last groups of like children that actually played outside yeah. our free time when we came home for school. It's like, Back we ride in our our bikes. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Sun up to sundown. Yeah. Right? We'd like ride around uh, like bikes in our neighborhoods. I know I personally did that. We yeah. like have Nerf gun wars and those are kind of a thing of the past, I think. But yeah. And now kids are all inside and yeah. At the same time, you look at all the rates of like uh, depression, anxiety, and all those are skyrocketing. And I don't know, I can't speak if there are any studies on that, but you can't help but think there's definitely some sort of uh, correlation or causation going on there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, it, you know, not to get too in the weeds with like the physiology or biology of the situation, but I mean, I mean, human beings, you know, benefit from being outdoors in a lot of different ways, you, you know, even from down to our circadian rhythm with the sunlight and that definitely. sort of thing. So, you know, I mean, I think being in that crossover generation where, at our younger years, there were, you know, I, I didn't have a cell phone until high school, you know, so we were, you know, you don't, you're not texting friends all day. You're not on social media. You're like riding your bike to their house to see if they're home. Like, you know, you're knocking on the door, like, Hey, can, yeah. you know, can Raga come outside? Like, we're exactly. going to go to the park. Like, just like, <laughs> you know, training that out for like, and then, you know, we kind of went into the era of like, okay, now we have these, now we have PlayStation two, PlayStation three, and we could literally have a headset on and play Call of Duty. And now instead of hanging out, doing whatever, we're hanging out just- Insulting each other. insulting each other. (laughs) You're technically outside in Call of Duty, right? (laughs) The virtual outside. Exactly, or Minecraft. Um, But yeah, I was was right with you guys playing, you know, every afternoon, every day during summer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you don't really see that anymore. You drive around residential neighborhoods. um, You may see your lone kid or two, but by and by and large, nothing like things used to, to be. And I think, unfortunately, with the way the technology has gone, people are getting those experiences elsewhere. Mm. Um, my question is, are those experiences as good <laughs> or uh, as memorable as, say, experiences that, that we might have had? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things social media kind of does to us too, is it sometimes takes the desire to do things away because like, you know, I can look at this 4k video of Switzerland where it looks beautiful. I don't, I don't have to be there in person. I can watch right. it on someone's Facebook feed. Right. So like the, maybe it kind of lowers our desire to go out there and experience, you know, genuine, you know, uh, novel things because like, Oh, I've seen it, you know, I, you know, and it maybe in a, in a subconscious way where we're less, we, we have less desire to go experience different life things because we've in some way felt that we've experienced them already. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That kind of speaks to what people's view of the experiences experience is. Um, you know, I, I went to Korea about a year ago and I looked at a lot of pictures of Korea, but actually being there, smelling it, um, seeing it is a much different beast than just looking at pictures. And so I encourage people to actually look at things for themselves rather than, you know, the 4k video. (laughs) <laughs> Definitely not to throw a wrench in the current conversations kind of related, but like when you're going outside, um, you're playing in the dirt, you're eating dirt, you're doing all these different things. Where's the crossroads of things like, uh, maybe like gut health, which could be talked about a lot with your eating dirt as we were as kids mm-hmm. to mental health. Yeah. Well, you know, th- several studies have looked at, you know, what dietary modifications are, best for mood, um, Mediterranean diet consistent with other, you know, cardiovascular issues seems to be the best in terms of mental health. So, you know, olive oil, um, 
all the other things that go into Mediterranean diet that are escaping me. Um, those things have been shown just, to really just help more people. Olive oil. That's all yeah, you just need. olive oil. That's just, just don't worry just, about anything just, else. Just chug it. Dr. Patel's <laughs> olive oil diet yeah. coming soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that is probably the only thing that has really been shown to, to help with depression and anxiety. Now there are, you know, things that you can take like supplements that have been shown to help with depression. So for people who are taking antidepressants, omega-3 fatty acids can be really helpful. Um, it, in addition to all the other cardiovascular, you know, benef uh, benefits of omega-3 fatty acids. And then N-acetylcysteine has been shown to be helpful in people with mood disorders, marijuana addiction, stuff like that. So, you know, I think there is a role for supplements. Um, unfortunately, no vitamins have been shown to help with mood. So if people are thinking that vitamins are going to help with their mood or anxiety, it's pretty unlikely. At least that's what the research shows. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I think we lose sight of in a lot of ways, you know, just in ta talking about preventive medicine in general and, you know, I, and truly we try to separate the mind and the body, but I think, you know, a truly healthy person, really you're, you're accomplishing, you know, a lot of those things by taking the personal responsibility to take care of yourself in those multiple ways. And I think we can't necessarily maybe be even be fully mentally healthy if we're physically unhealthy, right? Like, Absolutely. And if our diet is poor and our sleep is poor and you know, then you throw on, you know, the genetic, you know, more biological side of kind of mental health issues, you know, it's a multifactorial problem. You know, it's, it's the, you know, we consider the biopsychosocial model of health is you have your biology, some of you, some of it that you can control. And yeah, some you might need you to can. break that word down. So biopsychosocial <laughs> is basically encompasses basically biological. So that's the bio side. So that could be, you know, your genetics, the things that make you, you from a level of things maybe you can't control. And then psycho being obviously, um, things that have to do with the mind, the brain, and then social being our interactions with each other. So, and the idea is that, and they've actually done several studies on um, kind of this newer model, and it's still being kind of late to be accepted in medicine, even though kind of the evidence really supports this is we can't break down every issue into one discrete category, you know? you know, our psychology, our social learning, our biology all interplay on a daily second to second basis to create what is our perception of our reality. And so, you know, in, in saying that, I think that, you know, if we take care of our diet, you take care of your, you know, your kind of your physical aspects of things, you take care of your social aspect of things, you know, surrounding yourself with people who are supportive and, um, and you're just, you know, having, having quality friendships and family relationships and those sort of things. And then, you know, the psychological side of it where, you know, you're, you're doing the mindfulness things, you're challenging yourself, but not too far and, and managing those things. I think that that combination of things really comes together and creates this, this picture of health. And I think we overlook oftentimes various parts of it, mostly the psychosocial. I think we try mm -hmm. to like, you know, where's this pill that I could take to give me mental health, you know, right. where's this pill I could take to lose a hundred pounds, mm -hmm. you know, versus taking that personal responsibility of saying, uh, the, all these things interplay together and I can control the things that I can control to kind of make, make those things come together in a meaningful, a meaningful, helpful way. Yeah. I think you're also mentioning a, a huge issue with our society, which is that pill for every ill model, right? So people want to feel better. They don't want to be depressed. They don't want to be anxious, but they don't want to do the work uh, mm -hmm. attached to it. Um, you know, people just want to take a pill so that they don't feel depressed and, you know, in reality, if we're, if we're looking at how people feel better, it's a combination of medications and therapy. And I think medications get you to the point where you can get to work, get to therapy, do all the things you need to do. And therapy is where you really understand what thoughts, experiences, um, that you've had that are shaping you into the person that you are and how you can be better. And I think those, you know, studies always, almost always show that the combination of the two are always the most beneficial thing for people.
Definitely. I think that's one of the, I know we're early on in our careers, but for me, I think that's one of the things that, um, we look at medicines and we think about, we'll just take these and then everything will be okay. But mm -hmm. in my, my opinion, how I see it is that these medicines are kind of like a crutch that kind of carry along in the acute phase while you're solving the underlying problem and you're figuring out why you are the way you are, what happened to put me where I am right now. And then once you solve that, you get to the underlying problem, you can kind of wean away and maybe even take away that medication. So yeah, I don't know if that's true for psych. Well, you know, so the American Psychiatric Association recommends for more than two depressive episodes, lifelong antidepressant mm -hmm. treatment. Um, you know, I, I believe in those guidelines, but I also wonder, is there a detriment for maintaining people on antidepressants for their entire lives? in terms of their mood, are we causing more mood issues? Um, there is some research that shows there's something called tardive dysphoria, where having been on an antidepressant may cause mood symptoms as a result of the neurochemical changes that happen. Um, so yeah, I, I am always a fan of, of getting people off medication if we can, if they're stable mm -hmm. slowly and making sure that we're paying attention to the other things that we can be doing to improve their mental health. And obviously that we're talking about mood disorders, not some of the more, I guess we would, what we consider biological psychiatric issues like uh, schizophrenia or psychotic yeah, symptoms. Sure. Like those are often things are not, not necessarily what we're talking about in discussion where medications seem to have a more prominent role. And again, that's, that's a little bit too in the weeds for probably what we want to get into today. But um, I did kind kind of want to touch on, um, what your thoughts are on, you know, if we're talking about preventive medicine, mm -hmm. how do we get beyond the current stigma of, of seeking medical health care? Not even, not even for someone say you, you're having this horrible depressed mood and you have to go, but just for people who, you know, we go to the doctor for a checkup annually. Well, like, it, it seems like we don't have this idea in place of like, you know, we can prevent physical illnesses, but we could probably also prevent a lot of mood disorders and those sort of things by regular, mental health care, but we don't mm -hmm. really push those things because it's almost looked at as a weakness still in our, in our society. I think the biggest thing is equipping people with the language to describe how they're feeling. That is a huge issue, right? So a lot of people that I see, um, don't know that they're depressed, don't know that they're having anxiety. And so I think from an early age, even in kindergarten, preschool, elementary school, we should be teaching children what feelings are, what labels to put on them. Um, in patients who have a real difficulty with alexithymia, or is, is that's the difficulty with recognition of feelings, I'll print out like a happy face chart that describes every single one of those feelings. And sometimes that can be very, very helpful for people mm -hmm. to see that there is a name for how that they are feeling. So I think that is the first step. And then secondly, um, reducing any kind of punitive aspect to seeking help. So lots and lots of professions have restrictions that go on people if, if you say that you're depressed, like pilots, uh, police officers, doctors. And so I certainly think that that discourages people from getting the help that they need hmm. when there's an obvious downside to doing so. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the things that kind of at least growing up in the it kind of, a, it was, again, it was kind of a crossover era and every generation kind of has, you know, their, the typical things they grew up with. But I think, you know, on that borderline of, you know, somewhere between, um, uh, like, you know, don't show emotions because, you know, you got to be tough. You have to, you know, you know, crying is bad, you know, you know, like don't, don't experience these emotions because it's not right for someone who's, you know, you know, like 
typical, you know, stereotypical American male, like, you know, you play sports, you don't cry when you lose the game, like that, just those sort of things, those, but they, they really get ingrained into our, you know, our idea of self. And then, so I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance when you, you are feeling all these emotions and you've basically been, been told your whole life, or you've heard your whole life, like it's that this is, you know, it's, it's, you're showing weakness, you're weak because you're having these emotions. And I think that that puts people in a weird position where they don't want to seek help. They don't want to talk to people they, because they're almost ashamed that they're having maybe like they're depressed or they're anxious and they want to show strength by not seeking help. And really that's leading to kind of a, a bigger problem in the end of the day. I think one of the things that I want to highlight there is that everyone feels uh, some level of anxiety, some level of depression at some point in their lives. 100%. It's a completely normal feeling, but I don't think many people realize that is completely normal feeling. They feel isolated within their like depression, within their sadness, whatever they're feeling. And what makes it worse uh, in today's society, as we've been talking about, is that isolation where instead of like going out and hanging with your friends, you're on your phones and it maybe amplifies it even more because now you don't know other people who might be feeling mm. the same way. Right. So you think yeah. you're unique. I'm feeling this way. Something's wrong with me even. And then you get on social media and you see everyone living the, at least what you think is the best version of their life. Yeah, you're, exactly. looking, you're looking at literally everybody's top, their highlight reel. I mean, exactly. we're on, no one's posting on social media, like, Hey, I had a bad day. I failed this test. I, you know, I got exactly. in a car accident. Hey, it's, well, I mean, some people do that, but for the most part, you're looking at so-and-so posting their, you know, their new squat PR, their new car, their new mm -hmm. job title, you know, their, their significant yeah. other who looks really good. And, you know, I think from when we go on there and we look and we're like, man, I'm, like my life is nothing compared to this. And then like, none of these people are having any issues yeah, that I'm exactly. having. But in reality, like, you know, we're seeing people's highlight reels and we're not seeing, you know, the 99% of the rest of their life that maybe doesn't yeah. look quite like that. And I right? think back in the day as well, like that example of uh, Jason rolling up to my house and being like, you want to play or something where mm. back in the day, if I don't feel well, then maybe someone might even come to my house. So there'll be more of that human connection mm -hmm. so that you can connect. This person is feeling that well. Let's mm -hmm. maybe give them some compassion. Let's feel some empathy or something like that. And you have more of that human connection, which kind of alleviates a lot of those feelings of sadness and anxiety because we are social creatures, as you mentioned. Absolutely. But now we're isolated behind these devices and we continue to isolate ourselves. And it's also that negative spiral that continues to go downwards and downwards and downwards until you reach these like clinical levels of where you have to get treated for these things. Right. I think to speak to what you were talking about, you know, imagine if we equipped young people with the ability to, to say how they feel, right? And as adults, something happens, they say, I feel depressed, I feel anxious. So maybe part of our job should be to normalize the fact mm. that, you know, depression, some, some portion or some experience of depression and anxiety is not unusual. Mm -hmm. It is likely going to happen. Uh, one thing, I'm an inpatient psychiatrist, so one thing that we often talk about is coping skills, which I don't think people realize what those are, but those are the things that we do when we're feeling depressed or feeling anxious or feeling upset. Um, how do we help ourselves feel better? Mm -hmm. And I think you know that should be a big focus of early childhood education. I'm by no means a early childhood educator, um, but just seeing these people 10, 15 years down the line from their childhood, mm -hmm. I could definitely see how those patterns have established themselves early in life. So I think the earlier we're able to get people to number one, identify the emotion that they're feeling and number two, do something healthy about it. Uh, I think that's going to be great for society. And Dr. Patel, you and I have talked about this before specifically regarding, you know, we had gotten some discussions regarding chronic pain and that sort of thing. And uh, we know that we, if the, through the evidence that we have that chronic pain and mental health status are very well correlated in terms of um, how someone experiences their pain, how they categorize their pain and, and the significance that it means to them. But I think in a lot of ways we can maybe extrapolate that and say that, 
you know, our, our mood can sometimes, you know, or, or I guess our way of, our, of coping, or if we ever learn to cope or not to cope in a healthy way, um, it plays into our view of self. And sometimes I wonder if, you know, our, our view of self in terms of thinking of, are we resilient? You know, if you, if you want to think of, I guess, building a, a patient population or a population in general that has good self-efficacy and good self-resilience and kind of a healthy way to look at things, maybe not over-medicalizing moods, you know, like it's okay to feel anxious, but is it, you know, but let's, let's stop making feeling anxious or making that like, okay, I'm not, now I'm viewing myself as this anxious, depressed person who can never crawl out of that thing. Instead, reframing it as, you know, these are normal emotions to have. Let's, t- let's talk about how we can get you or get somebody to be more functional with those and kind of, you know, this is a normal experience. Let's talk about how we can healthfully alleviate some of those feelings. Yeah. Kind of looking at those like more functional outcomes rather than, rather than the experience of the pain, I think is what you're speaking mm-hmm. to. Um, and, you know, with the opioid epidemic, pain is becoming a really big topic in medicine and even outside of medicine. I think we have to accept on some level, um, you know, I'm 34 years old, I'm starting to have some chronic pain, you know, my knees hurt, my back hurts. And I think that's going to be something that's going to be with me for probably the rest of my life. And so we have to accept some degree of pain. Now, I think we need to focus on what can we do functionally. So like what, what kind of things do I want to do with this chronic pain? Do I want to go on a hike, uh, run a marathon? And that's what we should be focusing on rather than the quality or intensity of the pain. Yeah. It's like back to that same quote. It's not the absence of, it's the, I guess the, the framing of, and, and the appropriate amount of, mm-hmm. and so how do we do, are we catastrophizing, you know, this, this, I guess a poor version of coping where, you know, uh, I, my knee is painful. So I'm, uh, I'm letting that now affect everything. Like, even right. though maybe really in reality, you could go and live your life and, and do all these things, but it's just really affecting your view of self that you've got this, whatever pain that won't go away. And so it starts to, you know, then you, then you stop to, you start, I guess, optionally lowering your functionality because maybe it's an annoyance and you don't want to deal with it. And then eventually, you know, you decondition yourself to the point where now maybe you are physically incapable um, of, of doing things. So I think you're right. I think, you know, accepting some degree of pain. And I think there are a lot of studies that show in various parts of the world that their perception of pain is much different than ours here. Much different. Um, and their expectation. So like we talk about, you know, um, post-surgical procedures, most countries don't even use opioids after a surgical procedure. And we are really quick in our country to use those because we have this expectation that life is supposed to be pain-free. And I think in a similar way, you know, you could think about moods and, in kind of you know, maybe in terms of mental health, you know, some degree of sadness sometimes and anxiety sometimes and anger and those things, those are just normal parts of life. And our expectation shouldn't be to rid ourselves of those feelings, but to, to understand when they've gone too far and when they start to affect our ability to, to live a life that we view as full and, and happy. I think that's an excellent analogy. And if we take a step back and we think like, what is the purpose of anxiety? What is the purpose of depression? Why has this um, persisted evolutionarily amongst humans? And, you know, at least for me, anxiety alerts you to a dangerous or important situation. Uh, depression has a variety of interesting theories. More recently, a study has come out um, saying that depression may have protected uh, individuals from infectious diseases. Um, but I think understanding that these emotions serve a purpose, right? They, they're not around just to make our lives more difficult. <laughs> they're around to tell us that, hey, maybe there's something going on around you or physiologically that 
something needs to happen. Something needs to change. Mm -hmm. And uh, this goes back to that book that I was reading. It seems to be the perfect book for this conversation. <laughs> in the uh, book of joy, they mentioned if you can uh, liken uh, sadness to depression. And if you put those two like uh, similarly, then um, I think I forget which one it was that said it. But they said that sadness is actually evolutionary there too. And this is not necessarily scientific. This is from their anecdote from their spiritual experience, I guess you can say. Sure. But they said the point of sadness is to connect with other people because when you're sad you're kind of in a vulnerable aspect where you want to reach out to others or others reach out to you and it kind of helps you connect so um, when there's periods of grief like say someone passes away everyone gets together and it's a period where everyone connects they get to like kind Experience of rekindle relationships yeah. exactly yeah. so that's kind of what they said the purpose of sadness was in a guess so yeah. just answering that question it kind of circles back to the idea of community too mm -hmm. right so having people around you to support you when you are feeling Feeling sad or everyone experiencing that sadness together, like mm -hmm. in the case of funerals. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, emotions are not something we should run away from. We should just accept that they're going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, like I tell my patients, you're going to feel anxious again and you're going to feel depressed. Um, it's just a matter of how do you handle that emotion rather than the emotion itself. Mm -hmm. So we are 50 minutes into this podcast and I want to make sure that everyone listening to this, make sure we have some sort of practical takeaway, not necessarily medical advice, sure. but something that might, they might be able to incorporate it into their lives. So, um, what's something or some things that you would recommend people if give, they want give to give us a, like a, a short list of, of, or maybe, a, maybe a checklist of things that could help people lead to a, a, a better state method. of, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Um, well, let's see, uh, number one coping skills, right? So coping skills are things that we do when we're feeling sad, anxious, upset, um, so, you know, whatever, whenever you feel any of those things, you should do something. Um, for a lot of my patients, it's deep breathing, it's, you know, doing a puzzle or reading a book, going for a hike. Um, but building your ability to tolerate these negative things that happen, because we know that those emotions usually will get better over time. Um, I also think appropriately understanding the need for therapy. So a lot of times, you know, you don't even need to see a doctor. If you're having issues, marital issues, work issues, talking to a therapist can be incredibly helpful, whether or not you meet a criteria for any DSM-5 diagnosis, um, just having a therapist, and I'm speaking from personal experience, can be very, very helpful in just understanding the things that are going on in your life that is, that is keeping you maybe in a place you don't want to be. Does that therapist have to be someone who's like a psychologist or some professional, or can it be like anyone, like your significant other or whoever it may be? Generally, it would have to be a professional. Now, it's really interesting. They've done studies that have looked at the education level of therapists, you know, psychologist, social worker, psychiatrist, um, gender, race, uh, socioeconomic status. None of that matters, really. It's, it's actually the therapeutic report. So it's how close do you feel to your therapist? How much do you feel like they can help you? That's what really dictates the efficacy of therapy. Mm -hmm. So in general, I mean, I know people, I have patients that tell me, you know, uh, I have my wife, I have my daughter that, that I can talk to. Well, that's not the same because, um, a therapist is somebody who is kind of like a tabula rasa, like a blank slate. They don't know much about you. Um, and they're kind of looking at you from a, a more objective sense. And that's where I think that that is probably far more efficacious mm -hmm. in understanding those patterns that keep us where we are than, than a loved one. Yeah. And then as far as coping skills go, I know we talked about mindfulness, mm -hmm. but, um, are there, do you want to elaborate on like specific coping mechanisms that some people might want to like look up or practice for themselves? Sure. Yeah. I think mindfulness is a big one. Um, there's a great book called uh, full catastrophe living by John Kabat-Zinn, um, which talks about how to incorporate mindfulness therapy into your life. Um, if, if you Google mindfulness exercises, that's a good place to start, uh, deep breathing. So four seconds in six seconds out, you know, for about 
five minutes can really help people if they're feeling anxious um, exercise. So, you know, lots of studies speak to the link between uh, exercise and mental health. So people who have a regular exercise routine in general have better mental health um, down the line. Mm -hmm. um, yoga. Yoga has been shown to increase levels of dopamine in your brain. So that can be really helpful for, uh, for depression or for anxiety. Um, that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. So just to summarize for anyone listening to this, um, two preventive ways to kind of look at your mental health are one to develop your coping mechanisms. So when things do pop up in your life, you're not burdened by them, but you have a way to effectively release them in a sense. Mm -hmm. And those would be like mindfulness techniques, such as breathing that we talked about earlier in this episode, maybe having a regular exercise routine. Um, and then also the, uh, yoga which has been shown to improve uh, dopamine, correct? Mm -hmm. You said? Yeah, increase dopamine in the yeah. brain. And then secondly, if you are getting to a point where you might need to talk to someone, then having that therapist available is also something that's mm -hmm. preventive rather than treating because you're kind of talking through your feelings and not um, isolating yourself and kind of going down that mm -hmm. rabbit hole. But you're putting it out in the open, you're normalizing it and you're talking about it and finding a way to alleviate it in a sense. Another thing I would add is for people to utilize their support system. You know, people are, people love you. You mean people have, friends, family, and they want to help you when you're feeling mm -hmm. down or feeling upset. And so, um, I know often when we're feeling depressed or we're feeling anxious, our inclination is to not reach out to those people, but I would encourage people to reach out to their support system and let other people know what's going on with you. Cause it's going to help you, um, in the long term. And then another thing, I think we talked about this earlier is that that idea of balance, right? Um, viewing your life in a realistic balanced way is going to help you feel better about the things that are happening to you and the things that you are doing. Hmm. And I think uh, there was one more thing we had been talking about. I think we can add to the practical list and something known as bibliotherapy, um, which is basically um, therapy via reading books. So I know that's that's one of the things you you are somewhat passionate about or believe in. And I think that's can you kind of touch on that and how that yeah, can be helpful in a practical absolutely. way? Uh, I'm a big reader. I like to read um, all kinds of things, largely fiction. Um, but many studies have shown that uh, depression, anxiety, even OCD can improve just by books alone. So um, there's one book that's actually independently validated to improve depressive symptoms. It's called the Feeling Good Handbook by David Burns. It's been published, I think, in the 70s or 80s or something like that. It's a pretty old book, but it's a combination self-help book, workbook. Um, but, you know, I think the idea of reading books to help ourselves is not a new one. Um, but I think people doing it with more intention, um, maybe doing that bibliotherapy in concert with the other coping skills, exercise routine, yoga may really help people be the most healthy version of themselves. And it's funny that we're talking about reading. I personally just picked up reading again for the past, uh, I think it's been like seven or eight months now. I hadn't read a book since, uh, what is it like sixth grade? And then I realized <laughs> you could just like easy bib everything. So I oh, stopped nice. reading up until six months ago. And then I picked it up and I've read like 40 to 50 something books. And it's definitely tremendously beneficial. It is. it is. In a weird way, um, it's very ritualistic. And you think about reading a book, I mean, you're almost, so you think about, I, I know Dr. Patel, when we first, when I, when I think my first week with you rotating, we talked about, you know, what makes something a ritual and it's the act of you kind of leaving society, something happens and then returning to society in a changed way. Right. Right. And I feel like reading a book, you kind of, especially fiction books, um, you kind of enter this different world, right? Like you're leaving this, this kind of realm and you're taking your mind off of all these different things that are happening here. And maybe, maybe along with that, you know, when you read your book, you sit in your favorite chair, you have your cup of coffee or your tea or whatever, you know, it's this, 
And it all kind of goes into this big um, experience where, you know, you're, you're getting to escape kind of for a little bit. And then you, when you're finished with the book, you kind of return maybe a little bit different with some different insights, with some different, you know, maybe a little bit more relaxed, but kind of there's this very ritualistic sense of, of what happens when you're reading a book that I think maybe contributes to some of that. And I think another thing you can get from books, which I've personally gotten a lot of is, uh, experience. Like when you're reading these books, these people who have written them most likely have uh, a lot of life experience in whatever they're writing about. So you get to see new viewpoints, uh, experience how that person, uh, looks at life and so forth. So kind of gives you a view of the world outside of your own. So Absolutely. what you see with your own eyes might be a very like, um, dark vision if you're in that spot. Whereas if you read something and you see someone else's vision, you can see life is actually great and people are doing well, enjoying life and they can overcome these obstacles. And then that might be put ideas in your own head. And yeah, it's like reframing. Like you exactly. need to reframe your own exactly. perspective a little bit. Yeah. I think also books help us understand where other people are coming from, you know, reading, uh, especially a fiction book from a narrator's perspective perspective can help you if you encounter a similar person or situation, helping you appreciate what, what that other person's feelings are. So mm -hmm. yeah, in addition to all the other benefits you guys mentioned. Yeah. All right. So we're 58 minutes in, right. um, with respect to your time, I think we're going to start closing it. So I think I just want to, I just have one more question. So sure. <laughs> I, I want to, I just want to hear a little bit about, uh, your, your, uh, dream of traveling the world and doing telepsych. <laughs> Um, so telepsych is, so I'm a big technology guy. Um, you know, I'm a millennial, good or bad thing. Um, but I've done some telepsych in my training and I really enjoyed it. What, what is telepsych? A telepsych is the, um, is the idea of providing psychiatric services through video teleconferencing software, usually HIPAA compliant, um, video teleconferencing software. So, um, really get to reach patients who otherwise may not have access to a psychiatrist, um, really rural areas and you get to work with them via, via video chat. And, um, it's actually really awesome. And, and when you really get in the flow of things, speaking of flow again, it almost feels like it's like a face-to-face -face interaction. So, um, I am currently building a, uh, like a camper van out of an old beater GMC Savannah that I picked up. And eventually maybe one day I'd like to do telepsych while traveling around in that van and, uh, you know, explore America while, getting to help people. I think Have you be been awesome watching thing. a lot of uh, van life YouTube channels? Obsessively. My, my girlfriend is really obsessed with this one. This girl has been through a lot. She's traveling through Europe in her van. It's quite incredible. Yeah, I watch hours of uh, van life <laughs> videos a day. Um, probably should cut down on that. Yeah, there was, there was a post I saw on Reddit actually, and we were talking about that before, where he has a fully functioning like gaming rig set up in his van, wow. which is... That's a dream right there. <laughs> Just travel. So if it, 10 years from now, you may see on Netflix, uh, Dr. Patel's traveling documentary. Oh, yeah. I told him if he sure. does it, he needs to start videotaping himself because I think a lot of people would actually enjoy that kind of, Definitely. Uh, that travel experience and just kind of seeing that, uh, just, a, it's just kind of a, a fun it's idea. It's a really cool yeah, experience. It's a cool idea. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us like actually definitely gives you a lot of freedom in terms of location with also the ability to, to do what you love. So yeah. Speaking of following your journey, is there any like social media stuff that you want? people to know about follow you or? I unfortunately don't use a lot of social media yeah. so no I don't have one all right <laughs> so any any projects you're working on that people can look out for or anything yeah. that uh, kind of like you're you've got in the works at the moment no not really nothing in the works I do have a uh, you know idea to publish a book based on uh, grant rounds that I did in um, residency about drug advertising and 
um, how drug advertising influences us as consumers and doctors. Um, and I think we, we talked yeah, we about touched, that. That's that a whole nother topic. I think that would be a great future. That would definitely be a great future. Maybe we can have you on again and talk about this. Maybe once the van gets done, I can start on that. Yeah, we can meet up in Chicago. Yeah, exactly. Eat some pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So that's pretty much all we have for you, Dr. Patel. Thank you for joining us on the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And thank you for those listening. Again, this was our first go at it. So we will continue to kind of build off this and have some great episodes coming in the future. And make sure you guys follow us on our other channels. We are at Prevent Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, and on YouTube as well. So with that, we're out and we'll see you in the next episode. See you later, guys. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Prevent Podcast. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thank you all for listening and we will see you next time.